Heavenly Father, I pray now that the preaching of your word would increase our adoration of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we glimpse better his worthiness to be praised as we celebrate his glorious salvation. And may those who do not yet know him see the sweetness of that salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they also might be added to his people for his glory. In his name we pray. Amen. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Last week we began an Advent series that focuses on one of the key titles used by the prophets as they taught God's people how to hope for the coming Messiah. It's a title that we love to talk about at Christmas because it is so bound up in the hope of Israel for Jesus' coming. The prophets painted a rich picture of the coming Messiah, that he would be a shepherd, a servant, a judge, a priest, and also a king. Not just any king, a branch that would grow from the stump of Jesse, from the family of King David. The Jewish people had watched the decline of their kingdom since the days of David and Solomon. The kingdom was torn, the wicked northern tribes sent off into exile. Judah itself was exiled, but then allowed to return as a diminished people, ruled over by wicked foreign powers. All the people had left was hope. For a while, it looked like God's promise to David had failed. His promise that David's offspring would reign forever, David's line had steadily declined until it appeared to be snuffed out entirely, like a great tree cut down to a dead stump. And the glory of the nation itself was bound up in the glory of the kingship, which once seemed like a flourishing people, now itself seemed to be a stump. So the promise of the coming branch that a bud would shoot out from the stump of Jesse, David's father, was assurance that God had not forgotten his covenants and promises to David or to Israel. That a descendant of David could reign again was a renewal of hope for all of God's people. That shoot budded on the first Christmas. When Jesus Christ was born into the world, the appearing of the Messiah, the son of David. And as we consider his coming and the fulfilling of those hopes of God's people, we see that there are still yet promises and treasures that we hope for through the continued ministry of the branch from the stump of Jesse. Last week, we encountered the promise that the branch would establish the land of his kingdom. Not only bringing back the glory of David's kingdom land, but establishing a kingdom that would expand to the ends of the earth. He would even remove the curse from the land which had been laid down since Adam first sinned. But if the curse is removed from the land, we have to ask, who could inhabit such a land? Who could inhabit a world where sin was removed? Could you? Could I? In the days of Noah, God cleansed the earth from sin. He did so by removing from the earth all those who sinned. The flood was a cleansing bath for the world because it cleansed sinners from it. And this cleansing was an act of punishment upon those sinners for their sin. But in the midst of that judgment, 
God was gracious to save Noah, the most righteous man on earth. And yet even righteous Noah kept sin in the world. David himself was was a king that loved God's law and righteousness. God calls him my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only what was right in my eyes. Here was a king who not only desired to live righteously, but to uphold righteousness in his kingdom. His righteousness would be would mean that that he ruled over a kingdom of righteousness. And yet, even this most righteous king failed to meet his own standard of righteousness. He found himself needing to plead for the grace of God. And God was gracious to him. Gracious to him and his descendants, even as they drifted further and further from a love of righteousness. Judah was far from a kingdom of righteousness when they went into exile. But the messianic hope was for a branch from David's line that would not only be righteous himself, but would establish a kingdom of perfect righteousness. Let's read about that promise in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This would indeed be a very sweet promise to a people who were burdened by the sins of their rulers and even their own sin. The branch would be a righteous king. He would not judge based on a personal, limited, sin-infused human perspective. His standard will be justice itself, the justice which proceeds from the character of God. He will be clothed in righteousness. It will go with him always. It will be inseparable from him. And the result of his reign would be a peace that touches the ends of the earth establishing a renewal for creation for the land and a righteousness in everyone who is a part of that kingdom. So that Isaiah can say that under this king, the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord like waters cover the sea. So our first point this morning is this. Israel hoped for a king of righteousness to establish a kingdom 
of righteousness. They hoped for a king of righteousness to establish a kingdom of righteousness. This picture of the righteousness of the branch in his kingdom is also painted by the prophet Jeremiah. A significant part of Jeremiah's work as a prophet was to pronounce woe on the wicked leaders who were guiding God's people in their decline, which would eventually lead to exile. But Jeremiah also offered a hope on the other side of exile, that God would establish a king, a righteous branch, who would be nothing like those false shepherds. He says in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The name of the branch himself will be, the Lord is our righteousness. He will be a visible, prophetic revelation of the righteousness of the Lord. He will show this in both being righteous and reigning righteously and justly. Now, Jeremiah repeats this promise from God in chapter 33. But now you'll notice a slight but important change in the promise. Jeremiah 33, 15 and 16. In those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now we see that because of the righteousness of the branch of David, Jerusalem herself will be called the Lord is our righteousness. In the prophets, capital cities as the site of the throne of a people are often given to mean the whole kingdom. So Jeremiah's promise is that because of the righteous reign of the king, the whole kingdom under his rule will be so clearly conformed to God's righteousness that they also will receive the name that the king deserved. The Lord is our righteousness. Just as the glory of the people is bound up in the glory of the king, so the righteousness of the people is bound up in the king's righteousness. This was true in Israel. It was evident. Righteous kings upheld and enforced the law. They made sure it was taught to the people so that righteousness would flourish. Conversely, wicked kings abandoned the law and encouraged sin by their own actions and by bringing foreign gods and practices into the land. Thus, a wicked king would lead the people in wickedness. So, of course, those natural benefits of having a righteous king would be true in the Messiah's restored kingdom. But this is not all the Messiah will do. If we go back a few verses in Jeremiah 33, we see how the Messiah will bring about his kingdom of righteousness. Jeremiah 33, 7 and 8. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. In the days of Noah, God cleansed the world from the sinners that lived on it. But now, as a part of the restoration worked by the branch of David, God will fully and perfectly cleanse sinners themselves 
and forgive their past sins. The Messiah would work the kind of holiness in God's people which God had desired since he declared in the law, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now if we return to Isaiah's picture of the branch in Isaiah 11, if we read just past the verses that we love quoting at Christmas, Isaiah speaks more of the branch in verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Here we see more wonderful promises for the kingdom of the branch. After this verse, Isaiah goes on to explain how the Messiah is going to draw back all the exiles of Israel to himself and bring justice on their oppressors, just like he did in the days of Egypt. But we also see that this signal that goes out to the nations will lead the nations themselves to respond, to reach out to the branch. How will the branch reach out to the Gentiles? What will they inquire of him? Certainly not whether they also could be righteous. That seems like too strange a task for God. If it would be miraculous to cleanse the people of Israel, how much more miraculous would it be to cleanse the peoples around Israel who were usually the ones leading Israel into sin? The people sacrificing their children to Molech and introducing perversion into their religious rites. So now we step back and we look at all of these great promises relating to the branch. He will be righteous. He'll establish a kingdom of righteousness made up of cleansed people that are drawn back to him from their exile. And that the Gentiles themselves would inquire of him. Whose life and ministry could accomplish such monumental promises? Our second point is this. Jesus came to create a righteous people for God. On Christmas Day, the branch budded. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the King of kings, came into the world. But he did not come in splendor to immediately seat himself upon a throne. He didn't come to overpower Herod and Caesar and take their scepters away. He had a bigger plan. For a bigger kingdom. If Jesus had descended to earth and went straight to a throne, what do you think it might have looked like for him to establish his kingdom of righteousness? How could he have brought it about? It might have looked a great deal like the days of Noah, creating a just land by punishing and removing all of us from it. It would have been a righteous kingdom and a just response to sin, but it would have been an empty kingdom, one that only Jesus himself would have been worthy to live in. But God had a plan, not just for a righteous kingdom, but one that was populated by a cleansed people, a cleansed people who would praise their king for being the one to cleanse them. We've seen that in the prophets. And so Jesus came not to lord over us, but to become like us and serve us. Not to take a throne, but to be born in a barn. He came not yet to make war on his enemies, but so that as the angels announced, his coming could mean glory to God and peace for men with whom he is pleased. 
for Christ to reign over a people whom he had made righteous came at the greatest cost to himself. We see this cost beginning to be paid at Christmas. When he came to be born, born of David's line, and born a human just like us. This is how Jesus could be the Messiah that fulfilled the hopes of his people. As a human being, Jesus lived a totally righteous life under the law. He lived as a perfect citizen of God's kingdom, the first man in history to do so. Then he took that perfect record, the record of a righteous citizen of the kingdom of God, and he carried it to the cross. There he exchanged his record for the record of a sinner, our record. And then he bore the punishment by which God cleanses the world from sinners, the punishment of death. But three days later, he rose from the dead, showing that he had accomplished the breaking of the curse of death for all who would trust him. What then could that death and resurrection accomplish for us? What did it mean for people so sinful that there would seemingly be no way they could inhabit a kingdom that could be called the Lord is our righteousness? When Christ put our record on himself, the record of a sinner, it was an exchange. He took the record of all those whose faith is in him, and then his perfect record is imputed to us who believe. We are declared righteous. We receive that record because we are united with him by our faith. And our resurrected Savior is declared perfectly righteous by God. So then, we who are in him share in that perfect record. If he deserves the name, the Lord is our righteousness, then those who are in him will share in the name because we share in him. But this is not the fullness of what God, the cross, accomplishes for God's people. They are not only called righteous, it's not only a name. They will indeed be made righteous as he is righteous. Through Christ, God brings about his promises to cleanse his people. The symbolic cleanliness laws way back in the, in the Old Testament law in Israel, they pointed to an actual cleansing that Jesus' death and resurrection would work for God's people. One of the key cleanliness laws was that anyone with leprosy must be removed from the people, that the people remain clean while those with leprosy were cast out. But Jesus in his ministry healed lepers, pointing us to his ability to wholly and completely, inside and out, miraculously cleanse anyone who came to him, even those most stained by sin who seemed furthest from righteousness. The author of Hebrews tells us that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is actually effective to purify our consciences. Because the spotless Lamb of God died for us, we can be cleansed to become spotless before Him. This begins when Christ's people are regenerated. They are born of the Spirit. They live a new life in the Spirit. And the Spirit in them is actually working holiness in them. So Christ's people are, by the Spirit, conformed to the righteousness that they already were declared to have by faith in Jesus, cleansed and renewed to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Many people in Israel rejoiced to see Jesus fulfilling these messianic promises, beginning to carry them out even in his lifetime. 
to see this man from the line of David who miraculously cleansed the unclean, lived a perfect life, and even died and rose again according to the scriptures. But the effective, miraculous, saving power of Jesus, righteous life and death and resurrection, was greater than even the apostles had fully grasped. The prophecies that even the Gentiles would come to the branch came like a shock to Peter when he was given a vision of unclean food coming down from heaven and was told, what God has made clean, do not call common. This was his signal to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. By Jesus' death and resurrection, the Molech worshipers, the pagans, the perverse could be forgiven and cleansed just as the Jews were. In Romans, Paul goes back to look at Isaiah 11 to show his readers, who are both Jews and Gentiles, that Isaiah's prophecies are coming true specifically through this cleansing and salvation being offered to all of them together. The signal that goes out to the nations, says Paul, is the gospel going out to work salvation in the Gentiles. As the gospel goes out, as people are saved and sanctified, we can see the fulfillments of the promises of the branch of David already coming about. Paul quotes Isaiah 11 in Romans 15, 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And so says Paul in verses 18 and 19, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, Elysium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The proclamation of one gospel in both Jerusalem and Illyricum, to near and far, Jew and Gentile, is empowered by God's Spirit to create citizens for the branch of David, who will not only be declared righteous, but actually brought to obedience. The most wicked, far-off, wretched, and vile people can be forgiven and conformed to the image of Christ. So Paul can say in Corinthians that Jesus bore their record on the cross. Even they, Gentiles from a notoriously wicked city, even they could be made righteous in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This title for the branch, the Lord is our righteousness. This name for his kingdom people, the Lord is our righteousness is bestowed even on those who are most far off. Those wicked, sinful Corinthians become the righteousness of God. 
far-flung sinners, so distant from God and his people, were reconciled to God to become his own, to be recreated, reborn, so that they could both be named righteous and made righteous. Brothers and sisters, if you trust in Jesus, you are now saved by him. You are in him. If he took your sin and gave you his record, then you receive the name of righteousness from him. You are a new creation. The old is passed away, the new is come. You become the righteousness of God. The name of the branch, the name of his people, and you are even now conformed to that name that he has bestowed on us, which is ours for all eternity. But this work is not yet complete. We have not yet looked upon this renewed, promised world that we see in the prophets. We see people being renewed by Christ. We see the prophecies coming about. But at Advent, we also remember that we are looking forward to the absolute perfect fulfillment of this kingdom, establishing a world of righteousness, this work that will be completed by Christ. That's our third point today. We hope for a new world of righteousness brought about by the glorification of God's people and the judgment of the wicked. At Christmas, we love to read Isaiah 9. And as we read it, we recognize that we have seen God beginning to fulfill these promises. We have seen them come about. Many of them come about. We see that he is fulfilling them. He is carrying out the fulfillment of these promises. But we also see that he has not yet brought them to full fruition. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. While his government is increasing, as he reigns in heaven, as more are added to the church, while justice and righteousness are being worked in his people, we do not yet see the full, eternal, perfect realization of that kingdom. We know that. We know that we do not yet see this kingdom perfectly because we suffer much in this life. We despair because this kingdom has not yet been fully realized. The Apostle Peter in his letters speaks to Christians who are suffering in this way. They are suffering from the wickedness of the world and false teachers who have invaded the church to deceive and ensnare. And Peter's answer to his readers is to look forward and hope. And there are two things he tells them to hope for. The judgment of the wicked and the establishment of the people of righteousness. We have already seen that God is so gracious that he will not cleanse the world by wiping out humanity as he did in the days of Noah. But we cannot forget that what he did in the days of Noah was a just and righteous way to cleanse the world. 
And though God will save and sanctify many people, there are still many who live as enemies of God. And it is still God's promise that he will cleanse the wicked from this world by judgment. 2 Peter 3, verses 5 to 7 says, By means of water and the word of God, the world that then existed, that is in the days of Noah, was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So judging and casting out the wicked as he did in the days of Noah will be a part of the way the Messiah's kingdom of righteousness will be established. Indeed, this will be a part of the branch of David himself. Just as David defeated the enemies of Israel, the branch from David's line defeats all enemies of his kingdom. Isaiah promised that the branch would strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Paul assures us that Jesus himself will bring these promises about. 2 Thessalonians says, Jesus will come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Paul and Peter tell their readers of this coming judgment. And they tell them about it for the sake of their readers' comfort. They want their readers to know that God looks upon the affliction of his people. He sees how they suffer. He sees how they are grieved to still see so much rebellion against God in this world and how the world often treats them with animosity and oppression. And God promises that Jesus will bring peace to his people by defeating those enemies. They will be crushed under the feet of Christ, never to rise again, facing the just punishment for their sin for eternity. This is a hope of the saints. It is our hope that the righteous branch will do this righteous work. Peter then exhorts his church, if the victory of God is certain, if no enemy could overcome the victory of the branch of David, if he will surely reign forever, then we can rejoice that even if it seems slow and distant to us, that day is coming when his righteous kingdom will be fully established forever, and that realized kingdom will not only be free of the wicked who have gone to judgment, but it will be free of the sin which we, God's people, have committed. We who the gospel makes righteous will be completed, glorified, which means fully renewed body and spirit, made like our perfectly righteous king. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Last week we saw that this promise, that the branch of David would establish a kingdom that would cover the whole world. The world itself will be renewed, perfected, fully removed from the curse. And after the wicked have been cast away in judgment, God's people will be entirely perfected so that they themselves will be fully free from the curse. If we belong to Christ now, our fate is certain. As the creation will be remade, so will our remaking be completed.
Romans 8 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also glorified. And those whom he justified, all and every single one of those who he justified, he also glorified. So then, at Advent, as we look back on the hope of God's people for the budding of the branch of David, as we rejoice that on Christmas Day they learned their hope was being fulfilled, that a king had come whose throne would be established forever, so also now we look forward in hope. We look forward to the consummation of that kingdom. I want to close with three exhortations for you for the sake of your hope and your comfort. First, expect and anticipate the judgment of those who oppose God and oppress his people. It is good for us as we persevere to hope for that day the day when tyrants will no longer abuse their subjects. When those who twist reality to suit their freedom to sin will be silenced by the clear, rock-solid truth. When those who mock God and his people will be humbled. The truth will shine out over lies. Wickedness will lose its foothold and the righteous will be vindicated. Christ himself will bring this about. And this frees us from the burden of trying to bring about this world by our own strength or to give in to despair that we cannot do so. Remember how David did not waver in faithfulness to God while he was oppressed because he trusted that God would one day righteously judge all of his enemies. Our God is in control of history. And when things seem most hopeless, when they seem darkest, when it seems like the whole world is against us, we can remember this commitment to his justice. We can also remember, as Peter told his readers, that the only reason Jesus still tarries to bring his justice is that there are more enemies that he first wants to bring to repentance so that they would be cleansed and glorified as we were, as we will be. So let us persevere in faithfulness and proclaim the gospel so that more would be reconciled to Jesus, more would be glorified rather than condemned. Let us do so as we hope for that day. And if you do not yet know him as your king, your savior, consider whether he has tarried still because it is his plan today that you reject being an enemy of God who will be judged by him in hell so that you would repent of your sin and believe in his death and resurrection today that he took your punishment so that when he comes into his perfect kingdom of righteousness, you will be made holy, glorified, to dwell there forever, instead of being cast away from him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Second, if you are saved by Jesus, hope and anticipate the end of your own sin. As much as we groan and long for the end of the sin that opposes God's people, it should grieve us even more when we see sin within God's people and most when we see it within our own hearts. We are not yet fully made holy. 
in this world, all of us in Christ know what it is to mourn, to see how we still sin against God and each other. We have needed grace from our Lord. We need grace from each other. But now we aren't sinning as enemies who hate God. We sin as daughters and sons, selfishly rebelling against our beloved Father and Jesus who died for us. That stings us. As each of us still feels the effects of the curse on our bodies, we, we long for full restoration, not only for our bodies, but for our whole selves. We long to be purified from sin and its effects on us. Brothers and sisters, there will be a day when you who are in Christ will never sin again. Every word and thought and action that proceeds from you will be that which accords with righteousness, which honors and delights God. One day we will dwell together in perfect righteousness, and we will bear the name of all God's kingdom. The Lord is our righteousness. This should spur us on to not wait complacently for that day, but to trust in the work that God is already doing in us. If we now have the spirit that will one day complete this work of holiness in us, then we can reject our sin and persevere in righteousness today. That is a part of what it means to hope as a Christian, to persevere in holiness, to have an earnest desire for it. That desire confirms for us that we are indeed those who will one day be perfected by God rather than rejected by God. Longing for holiness is one of the first and clearest marks that we are God's people. So we long for the end of our own sin when we will live in a renewed heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Third, as you hope, rejoice in the branch of David, who showed he was the only one in history who could establish this kingdom of righteousness. We can open God's word and we can survey all of the history we see in it, the story of judges and kings who ruled with a mandate to be righteous, to lead God's people in righteousness. But under the judges, the people descended into chaos. Under the kings, they became a pagan kingdom. Even the best kings could encourage righteousness only for a while. None of them could really establish the righteousness that should characterize the people of God. All of this history was meant to point us to the reality that there was only one, one king who could himself reign righteously and establish a kingdom of righteousness. Only one king who was himself perfect and righteous, who could accomplish such a great salvation as to make his people righteous with him so that all his people could share his title, the Lord is our righteousness a son from the line of David, perfect in holiness, able to save his people and humbly willing to come and carry out this great salvation at such a great cost to save sinners like you and me. Gabriel declared the arrival of this one and only king 
To Joseph, he said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. At Christmas, we look back on those who waited for his first appearing, as we ourselves anticipate when he will return so we can worship him forever as the king who has saved his people from their sins so we can be a part of his perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending the one and only perfect king. We praise you that in Jesus we see the Messiah who can fulfill all the hopes of your people, all the promises of the prophets, all the longings of our heart, one and only king, perfect to do so, humble enough to be willing to come, to be born in a barn, to die on a cross, to save wretches like we are. We praise you for the grace and mercy, the perfection and love of that branch from the stump of Jesse, for the fulfillment of the hopes of your people, the fulfillment of our hopes. And as we look at Christmas as the fulfillment of hope, we ourselves remember our hope for his return to see this kingdom fully established so that justice and righteousness would touch the ends of the earth. And instead of being cast out of that kingdom because of your grace, we would be received in it, because Jesus died and rose for us. May he come soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.